you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24. That's where our scripture reading will be this morning. Luke 24, we're going to be looking at verses 13 uh, down through verse 46. If we could all stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Luke 24, I'll read the first verse, ask that you join with me on the second, and we'll continue every other verse. Luke 24, beginning with verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. 
Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead. Father, we thank you for uh, this word that we have from you this morning to look at. I pray that you would bless our study, our time together in Scripture. Help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to be more like you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to take just a minute to remind you of where we are in our study of Luke's Gospel because it has been two weeks and so it's easy to forget uh, what has recently taken place. Uh, chapter 22 records the betrayal of Jesus. You remember Judas Iscariot turns him over to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They had been seeking to kill him uh, for quite a while at that point. And Judas gave them the opportunity to arrest Jesus away from the crowds of people. Uh, and then you have the mock trials before the Sanhedrin. Chapter 23, you've got the trial before Pilate and before Herod. Uh, eventually, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Roman official uh, over Judea, uh, he gives in to public pressure, and he sentences Jesus to death. Even though he knows he's innocent, he says repeatedly, uh, I don't see any reason why you know, he hasn't committed any crimes. Uh, but he gives in to the pressure of the people, and he sentences Jesus to death. And then chapter 23 records how Jesus was crucified and then buried in a nearby tomb. And that brings us to chapter 24, the resurrection. Uh, now it's Easter Sunday, the first Easter. Uh, Jesus died the previous Friday. Now we're at Sunday. The women have gone to the tomb. And they found it empty. And they go back to the apostles. They report that the body is gone, that some angels even told them uh, that Jesus was alive from the dead. Uh, and that really brings us to our text this morning. At this point, nobody's seen Jesus yet. Uh, they've seen the empty tomb. They've heard this report from some women that were there uh, that said an angel appeared to them. But most of the disciples are just confused. They don't know what to think. Uh, it's, they're struggling to believe that Jesus is truly alive. Of course, all of their expectations of Jesus as the Messiah, uh, they were again expecting this military leader that would overthrow the Roman, uh, Roman occupying army in the land and give them back uh, their land in Israel. And so, of course, that didn't happen. And so they're, they're confused. They're wondering what's going on. Is Jesus even who we thought he was? <clears throat> and of course, these doubts of Jesus and, and whether or not he's truly alive, by the time we get to the end of our text this morning, by the time we get to the end of that Sunday, uh, those doubts will be completely erased. I've been asked a few times, and this is a weird question, but I get it sometimes. Uh, if you could change something in the Bible, what would it be? I always feel weird when people ask me that, but typically I respond with one of two things. Uh, first of all, I wish we had a few more verses on divorce and remarriage, uh, because it's just tricky to sort all of it out with the very little uh, teaching that we have in Scripture. Uh, my second answer is Luke 24. Uh, the story of Jesus going through the Old Testament, showing how it was all pointing uh, to his death and resurrection. I wish somebody had written that down. It would be absolutely fascinating to see what text Jesus goes to, uh, how he points all of the Old Testament scriptures to himself. But since we don't have that, we, just, we don't have the written account of what that Bible study looked like, I'm going to give it my best guess this morning. Uh, we're going to read the text in Luke 24, and then we're going to try to think of some passages in the Old Testament that Jesus may have uh, quoted to them. And I think by doing this, hopefully, we'll accomplish two things. Uh, first of all, you'll be able to see explicit prophecies 
from the Old Testament scriptures that foretold hundreds of years prior the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think one of the reasons that Jesus did this, one of the reasons he went through this Bible study with these uh, disciples is to bolster their faith in the Old Testament, uh, to see that, wow, everything that God predicted a thousand years ago, uh, it's happening now and it's all being fulfilled. So that's the first thing we hope to accomplish is that you'll see in the Old Testament these uh, predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection that we saw fulfilled in the last few weeks in Luke. Second, my hope is, <clears throat> that by looking at these Old Testament texts, we'll have a better grasp of just what all happened on the cross when Jesus died. Uh, in the Gospels, we have the facts. We have the who, the what, the where, the how. You can read Luke 23 uh, and get a, a detailed account of how Jesus was killed, uh, how he was mocked, uh, beaten, hung on a cross, buried. But you don't get much of the theology of the cross in the Gospels. You just kind of get the facts. Uh, but if you look at the Old Testament, which we're going to do this morning, I think it'll be very helpful to us to see uh, what was God doing, what all was happening, why is the cross of Jesus, his death, so significant in Christianity. We're going to begin in verse 13 of Luke 24. If you, if, you, if you have a Bible in front of you, let your eyes glance back. The first 12 verses of the chapter, you'll see uh, that followers of Jesus, like I said, they've discovered the empty tomb. It's Sunday morning. Uh, they just watched Jesus being crucified a couple of days prior, and now they're hearing reports that Jesus' body is missing. Uh, some of the women said the angels appeared to them, told him that, that Jesus was risen from the dead. And at this point in the narrative, again, nobody has actually seen Jesus. And so it hasn't really been confirmed to them that this is all true. They've seen the empty tomb, and they're all just kind of wondering what in the world uh, has happened. Verse 13, that very day, two of them two of these followers of Jesus were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So we've got two followers of Jesus. They're walking home from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and while they're, they're talking and discussing about everything that's taken place the last couple of days, this, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, and now you know, the, the body's missing, what, what's going on here? Uh, Luke, Jesus starts walking with them. The risen Jesus uh, that they had been wondering, where, where is he? He starts walking next to them. Uh, but Luke tells us that they did not recognize him. There could be any number of reasons why. Perhaps Jesus looked slightly different after the resurrection. Uh, perhaps he walked up, I don't know, with a hood or something over his head, uh, kind of just so they couldn't really get a good look at him. Uh, or maybe God just kept them from recognizing him. And the grammar here seems to suggest that that's probably the case. Their eyes were kept from recognizing that it was Jesus. Verse 17, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This is a very important statement. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We're going to spend more time looking at that phrase next week, but just realize these disciples of Jesus had thought and hoped that he was their Messiah. 
But then he died, and their hopes were dashed. They were left disappointed and confused. Verse 21, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they recount to Jesus the whole story. And uh, I think the, the source of their doubt is found in that last phrase, but him they did not see. Uh, we've got an empty tomb. We've got some women who claim that angels appeared to them. But, but if Jesus is really alive, where is he? Why hasn't he come in and, and, and shown himself to us? Now, of course, the irony here is rich because he's standing right next to them, but they don't realize that. They don't recognize him. And Jesus doesn't tell them that it's him. Uh, isn't that interesting? They're wondering, where is Jesus? If he's really alive, where is he? Jesus could have said, hey, I'm right here. He could have revealed himself to them right there in that moment and, and settled all of their doubts, but he doesn't do that. He plays this out a little bit longer. And I can't tell you all of the reasons why Jesus chose to keep his identity hidden from them at this time, but I think part of it was to teach them some things. Rather than just give them the answers, I think Jesus wanted to ask them questions and lead them to discovering the truth for themselves. Perhaps the second reason he did this, as I said before, was to bolster their faith in Scripture. Instead of just saying, hey guys, it's me, I'm alive, uh, Jesus leads them through a study of the Old Testament Scriptures, showing them from their Bible how all of these things that have taken place were a part of God's plan from the beginning. Verse 25, he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice their problem wasn't that they didn't believe the things the prophets had said about the Messiah. The problem was they didn't believe all of it. They latched on to some of that triumphant text in the Old Testament about the Messiah establishing his kingdom, uh, subduing his enemies, ruling in Jerusalem. They loved those texts because that meant freedom from Rome and getting our land back, and getting our nation back. But they had missed the text about Christ dying and rising again. And so Jesus says to them, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I would love to be uh, a fly on the sandals of one of these disciples. Uh, it's a weird way of saying that, but you know what I mean. I'd love to be there to actually hear uh, what Jesus said exactly. He starts with Moses, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then he goes through the, the prophets as well, and he shows them from all of the scriptures, the Old Testament, how it was pointing to his death and resurrection. And again, since we don't have a record of this Bible study, you get to listen to my best guess. It says that he started with Moses, the first five books, so let's start there too. If you're thinking, well, where, where in the first five books is Jesus' death and resurrection mentioned? Isn't that just a bunch of stories and laws and stuff? Uh, you're about to find out. First of all, Genesis 3. Uh, three pages into the Bible, we get our first prophecy of Christ's death. If you're familiar with the story, the first pages of the Bible begin with the creation of the world, how God made all things from the land to the plants, the fish, the birds, all the animals. And last of all, 
God made humans, Adam and Eve, the first two people from whom the rest of us descend. And in those early chapters of Genesis, everything is great. Uh, God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden where all of their needs are met. Uh, and they're given the command to go out and subdue the earth, rule over the world, harness its potential. Uh, humans aren't just like other animals. We are uniquely made in the image of God to rule the world on his behalf. There was only one rule for the humans. Uh, don't eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden. Uh, God provided all sorts of fruit trees for them, but that one fruit they were told, don't eat it. And even if this is the first time you're hearing this story, you know instantly what's going to happen. Of course, they're going to eat it. Uh, kind of like in, in kids' books, you know, you, you, the first page is like uh, the kid is being told, don't go in this room under any circumstances. You know immediately he's going in the room. Uh, it's just kind of the way the Bible is set up like that. So they're given this command, don't eat this fruit. They end up eating it. And as soon as they did, sin entered the world. That, that, that single act of disobedience caused the human's relationship with God to be broken. Their relationship with, with each other was damaged. Uh, the curse of sin has ever since that day impacted every aspect of our lives. And right in the middle of this story about how the good world that God had made was corrupted, we see the first mention of Jesus. God confronted Adam in the garden. In Genesis 3.12, he asked him uh, what he's done. And then, I'm sorry, verse 11, he asked him, what have you done? Uh, verse 12 of Genesis 3, Adam says, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. <clears throat> you see him shifting blame onto his wife. Uh, some of you are thinking that's typical. Uh, then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so she blames the serpent. Partially true, the serpent did deceive her. Verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, <clears throat> cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. Uh, the serpent, of course, is not just a normal snake. This is Satan, of course, you realize that. And so Jesus is, or God is telling him uh, that one day a descendant of Eve, a human, would crush him. He would crush the devil. And he would do so at great cost to himself. Notice, you'll bruise his heel. This is Jesus on the cross. This is the, the first text that shows us something about our Savior, that as he died on the cross, as that nail was driven into his feet, he was defeating sin. He was crushing Satan. In other words, the, the purpose of the cross, in part, was to restore Eden uh, so we could have our sins forgiven, our relationship with God and with each other restored back to the ideal that it was supposed to be, so the curse could be lifted. Even way back at the fall of man, God gives us an anticipation of how he's going to fix this problem of sin. Peter writes of Jesus in 1 Peter 2 that he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now <clears throat> have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Jesus died bearing our sins in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We had strayed like sheep, and now we've returned to our Creator because He crushed the head of the snake. Now let's move to Genesis 22. Again, we're still in Moses' writings here, the first book of the Bible. Uh, this is a puzzling text to many. This is the account where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Genesis 22, verse 1, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. At this point, you might be thinking, what on earth is God doing? Uh, hang on, it'll make sense at the end. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them, together. <clears throat> Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, I, uh, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Uh, Isaac had seen animal sacrifices before, and he knew uh, there's supposed to be a, a lamb here. Uh, verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provided for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. That ram caught in the thicket is a picture of Jesus. Isaac was going to die. He was on the altar about to be killed. But God intervened and provided a ram instead. Here we see one of the central aspects of the cross of Jesus, and that is the concept of substitution, that Jesus died on the cross in our place. We were supposed to die. Our sin had condemned us to death. We were the ones who sinned against a holy God. We deserved to face his judgment, but God in his mercy provided a substitute in Jesus. He takes our place. He bears our punishment, so we're able to go free. We're not going to take time to look uh, at the book of Leviticus this morning, but suffice it to say that this is the point of the whole book. God gives many pictures of the substitutionary death of Jesus Throughout the book of Leviticus and all the sacrifices and burnt offerings, you read through that in your Bible reading, and I know it's tedious. It's like, why is this even here? But these are pictures, images of Christ on the cross. The priests would symbolically take the sins of men and <clears throat> place them on the scapegoat. The priests would <clears throat> kill animals that were 
taking the punishment on themselves for the sins of others. All of it was pointing to Jesus. As John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of those types and pictures of the Old Testament, teaching us uh, of the concept of substitution. Every time an animal sacrifice was made to atone for sin before the cross, it was pointing to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God, bearing the sin and guilt of the world. Next, let's look at uh, Numbers 21. We're still in Moses. Uh, we'll get to the prophets in a minute. Uh, this is the story of the bronze serpent. Uh, God had rescued the Jews out of Egypt, and they were doing their typical thing of complaining. Uh, God's anger was kindled. He sends serpents among them. Verse 6 says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Kind of a random story in the Old Testament, isn't that? Again, this serpent is a picture of Jesus. We were dead in our sins. We had no hope of escaping the wrath of God against us until Jesus is set on a pole and lifted up. And just like the bronze serpent, we have the promise of God that if we will turn in faith to Jesus and his death for us on the cross, we can be rescued from our sin and death. Uh, this one is easy because Jesus himself used this passage in the Old Testament and explicitly said it was talking about him. Uh, John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Speaking of his being lifted up on the cross, verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We've seen a few texts in Moses' writings. Now let's look at Psalms. Psalm 22, uh, at the end of Luke 24, you notice uh, Jesus uh, explains again how the Old Testament is pointing to him, and it says he went through Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So, so the whole Old Testament uh, it points to Christ's death on the cross. Psalm 22, this is one of the most detailed accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, as I've pointed out in the past, this was written uh, about a thousand years uh, before Christ. This is written hundreds of years before the Roman Empire. And so crucifixion did not even exist at the time. It was not a form of execution yet. And yet, as we'll read this text, you'll see it describes in detail uh, the type of death and suffering that Jesus was going to go through. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, that should sound familiar. Uh, Jesus said that, those very words on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. 
Remember the, the mocking of Jesus by the soldiers and the thief on the cross, mocking him, saying, you know, where's your God now? Uh, you've helped others, help yourself. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from my womb, uh, from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bowls encompass me, strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Of course, referring to the nails being driven into Jesus on the cross. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Uh, this is a reference to the type of whipping that Jesus went through. Uh, the whips with the glass in them that the Romans used to, to tear off the flesh. So the bones would literally be exposed. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. If you look at Matthew's account, of course, you see that takes place. Uh, as Jesus is dying on the cross, the Roman soldiers are gambling over his clothes. All of this prophesied. I think the lesson here that we learn from Psalm 22 is just how meticulously this was planned from the beginning. Centuries before Jesus was born, God's plan was always to send him to earth to live and die for us. If you think the death of Jesus, if you think of the death of Jesus as a great tragedy in history, uh, some terrible thing that was done to someone innocent, you've missed the point. Uh, this wasn't an accident. This was the outworking of a plan that God had set in motion a thousand, thousands of years before. And the fulfillment of these detailed prophecies shows us that God was working all of this according to his will. Next, let's look at uh, the prophet Isaiah. We're moving from Moses, Psalms, now we're in prophets. Isaiah chapter 53, again, a very rich text that gives us so much of the theology of the cross. What was happening when Jesus died? How he died in our place, bearing our sins so that we could be forgiven. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 2, says, He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Such a beautiful description of the cross where Jesus bore our sins. Verse 7 goes on to predict how Jesus would be silent on trial. It says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You remember the trial before Herod? They kept trying to get him to speak, to prophesy. They'd slap him, say, who, who hits you? And the whole time Jesus silently endured that. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked 
and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You remember Jesus was laid in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. You also have there in verse 9 the mention of Jesus' innocence. He's not being killed for his own sins, but for the sins of others. He's being killed in our place. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's so much in that in those verses. First of all, of course, you see the beginning of the verse. This is all God's will. This is all God's plan. This isn't an accident. God wanted Jesus to die on a cross to make an offering for our guilt. Notice there he says, he shall see his offspring. Who's that talking about? Well, God. There's an indication that this person who's going to be crushed, who's going to die, is the Son of God. And then notice that next phrase, he shall prolong his days. This is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. After his soul has made an offering for guilt, his days will be prolonged. He's going to be coming back to life. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I'm not sure what text Jesus went to on this walk to Emmaus, but I have to think Isaiah 53 was one of them. Uh, so clear, so rich, eloquently explaining the death of Jesus for our sins and explaining why, uh, how it is that Jesus was bearing the punishment for our guilt by his death setting us free, satisfying the wrath of God against our sin. And then rising again as a sign that the payment had been accepted. Uh, perhaps there were other texts that Jesus went to. This is a seven-mile walk uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And so this Bible study probably took a few hours as he walked through the Old Testament, showing how it was all pointing to him. And remember the point of all of this. Back, in, back to our text, verse 25, Jesus had said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They were caught off guard by Jesus' death. And they didn't know whether or not to believe this story that he had been raised back to life. And so Jesus says, guys, you really should have seen this coming. Haven't you read the prophets? Haven't you seen all of the pictures, uh, the explicit prophecies of the Messiah who would come bearing the sins of humanity by suffering and dying and then rising again to crush Satan? But they hadn't seen it. By the time Jesus was through with this Bible study, they for sure saw it, no doubt. Uh, Jesus walked them through other texts. There were several others I, I considered uh, putting in this morning that we could look at. Uh, by no means is, is this exhaustive, but I hope you at least get the point that all of this was God's plan from the beginning to save humanity from our sins, prophesied in detail centuries before it took place. Well, after Jesus wrapped up this study, verse 28 says, they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as, as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. While he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then it says their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. 
I don't know if it was something about hearing Jesus pray and seeing him break the bread like they had seen him do so many times before, but in that moment, they suddenly realized who they had been talking to the whole time. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Of course it was him. No, nobody's ever taught with such clarity and power like Jesus. Even the Roman soldier said of him, no one's ever spoken like this man speaks. Verse 33, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Remember, uh, it's late at night. They just finished saying, uh, it's late. You should stay with us. And now they turn around. They go seven miles back to Jerusalem uh, to go to the 11 and those who were gathered with them together, uh, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now, this is a bit tricky to explain in English. I don't normally go into Greek with you guys, but I kind of have to here. Uh, verse 34, this is not the two guys talking, the two guys from Emmaus. Uh, saying at the beginning of verse 34 is a present plural accusative participle. Okay, remember that it will be on the test. Uh, what this means is the, the people speaking here are the group mentioned at the end of verse 33. Okay, so you've got <clears throat> the two guys who were just talking with Jesus, walking home. Uh, they realized it was him. They come straight to Jerusalem where the 11 apostles and some others are gathered. And before they can get their news out, uh, those who are there waiting for them say, you know, like as soon as they walk in the room, they say, hey, the Lord's risen. Uh, Peter saw him. Apparently somewhere before this or during this time or before this time, uh, maybe after Jesus vanished out of their sight, he goes and visits Simon Peter. And so then the two guys tell their story. Verse 35 says, then they told the, they told what had happened on the road, how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they were talking about these things, <clears throat> Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They, give him a they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Again, as I mentioned last week, uh, that was basically just to show them I'm not a spirit. I'm, I'm physical. I'm, I'm actually alive again from the dead. Uh, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Apparently he went back through some of those texts in the Old Testament, showed them again how it was pointing to him. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now we're going to look at those last few verses uh, more next week. But just to give you a preview, uh, Jesus says to them, everything in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the, that's a way of saying the Old Testament. We've talked about this before uh, when we when we taught on canonicity. I don't know if you all remember this, but uh, the Ketavim, I forget the, I can't even think of it now, the Torah, uh, the, the Ketavim, and the Nephaim. This is a, a way of uh, breaking up the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. We're not familiar with that, but when you see law, prophets, Psalms, that's just a way of saying the Old Testament. Uh, that, that was the way that it was broken up. And he says, <clears throat> all of this is pointing to me, and part of it has been fulfilled. 
Okay, the part of Jesus crushing the head of the serpent while having his heel bruised, the part about Jesus taking our place like the ram that took the place of Isaac on the altar, uh, the, the part about all those animal sacrifices throughout the Old Testament was pointing to the Lamb of God who would die in our place and atone for our sins. The part about the bronze serpent being lifted up on the pole, providing salvation to those who look and believe. The prophecies of Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, about this one who would come and die a brutal death in our place and then rise back to life. All of that has been fulfilled, but there's more to come. That's not the end of the sentence, verse 46. He goes on to say, not only does the Old Testament predict that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, but also uh, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all nations. We're going to get into that more next week. And so in other words, the cross fulfills all of the suffering passages of the Messiah. But there's also the conquering passages. There's also all of those texts that they were looking to about the Messiah defeating his enemies and establishing his kingdom. And those parts are what the book of Acts is all about. Uh, next week, we're going to finish up the book of Luke, and then we're going to start the rest of the story in the book of Acts. It's going to be our next book that we study. Uh, this is the spread of Jesus' kingdom. He had come to reign, uh, but not in the way that they had expected. It's way bigger and way better than anything that they were hoping for. They were hoping that the Messiah would save Israel from their Roman enemies. Instead, Jesus is going to save the world from sin. They were hoping that he would rule over Israel. Instead, Jesus is going to rule over all nations. And that's what we'll look at next week, how the resurrection of Jesus is the inauguration of the king.